Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you for being here. We're sorry we had to reschedule this program. We're glad this date and time still works for you. And we're thrilled to have you here with us uh, for this exciting program. We're excited to be partnering with Temple Emmanuel in Denver um, today on this program and excited to learn about this very um, important topic of green burial. Really a lot to say here and explore together. We will have the chance to hear from our scholar and then open up the questions and conversation after that. Of course, at any point, you are welcome to put questions or thoughts in the chat as well. And it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Rabbi Adina Lewitz, excuse me, Rabbi Adina Lewitz, who is um, founded Sha'ar, a Northern New Jersey, New York City-based values-driven Jewish community oriented around the call to societal, environmental, and spiritual sustainability. For nearly 20 years, Sha'ar provided multiple gateways into Jewish life, exemplified by a commitment to inclusiveness, diversity, innovation, scholarship, excellence, and collaboration. Adina recently served as a scholar in residence at Congregation B'nai Jeshurun in New York City, <coughs> a synagogue re renowned for its commitment to social justice and spiritual activism. Adina is also a member of the senior rabbinic faculty of the Shalom Hartman Institute, and she sits on the board of trustees of the Abraham Joshua Heschel School and on the board of Keshet. She also serves as the adjunct faculty member of the rabbinical school at JTS, where she teaches contemporary Jewish law. Previously, Adina served as the assistant dean of the rabbinical school at JTS and founded a synagogue in Englewood, New Jersey, modeling shared leadership and collective communal responsibility. Rabbi Lewitis regularly enjoys speaking engagements in the US and Canada and publishing essays on topics, including Jewish identity, modern Jewish law, leadership, Jewish innovation, sexual gender diversity, multi-faith, multi-heritage marriage and engagement, and contemporary Jewish spirituality, She's married to Andy Lewitis and has four children, two stepchildren, and one incredible dog. Rabbi, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It's great to be back with Valley Beit Midrash, and I'm uh, I'm really honored to spend this time with you. Thank you again also for your flexibility and, uh, and us being able to reconvene on this time. Um, all right, we're going we're gonna to jump right into this topic of green burial. I've got a lot to share with you. Um, and then, uh, and then hopefully we'll have a chance to to talk a little bit and to to question. Um, what what we're going to do today a little bit is um, some halachic myth busting. Um, we're going to sort of bring some light into some of the assumptions that we bring to this conversation. Uh, it's my minhag. It's my custom to open every opportunity to teach Torah with a very brief nigun. It's a way of for me. Um, um, getting centered, opening my mind, expanding my soul to uh, Torah to do business with Torah, which is what we're here to do today. So join me if you like, or uh, just allow it to, to have the same effect on you, I hope. talking about green burial in this moment. Let's take a quick snapshot of uh, the reality today, which is one in which the concept that guides so much of our tradition around death and burial, the concept of kivod hamet, the honor that we are obligated and privileged to bring to our deceased, to our beloved. Um, in the age of sustainability, we are confronting 
uh, growing concern for the threat of climate change, for the reality of, of environmental degradation, and many questions of Jewish law are surfacing. What do we do with the reality of land scarcity around when it interacts with burial requirements, spacing above ground mausoleums as Jewish tradition has engaged with those questions? There are environmental concerns that are raising questions about land use, toxins as a result of seepage from graves, embalming fluid that is seeping into the soil as bodies and coffins decompose, as well as real toxins from radiotherapy and chemotherapy drugs. There is the growing preference for cremation among Jewish people today under the assumption that it is a greener option, uh, better for our planet. Plus, we are living at a time where we are being introduced to a number of alternative approaches to the disposition of bodies, approaches such as natural organic reduction or otherwise known as human composting, approaches like alkaline hydrolysis, which is a water-based cremation uh, process. There are also some cultural challenges to Jewish tradition today. Um, uh, one being the growing presence of multi-faith and multi-heritage families um, and, uh, and communities and how we are responding to the need to be inclusive and expansive uh, of uh, those families and of the tradition when it comes to, um, to their burial needs. And as medical science becomes much more sophisticated in offering analyses helpful to the health and well-being of families and to medical science, autopsies are being uh, elected for in greater numbers and the decision to leave uh, bodies to science. So our gathering here today to talk about these difficult and uh, and in some ways explicit uh, issues, um, we are here to ask the questions about how these various initiatives, how some of these cultural realities um, live within the halachic system, live within a relationship to Jewish law. What are the roots of the practices that we assume have a uh, uh, have always, if you will, shaped Jewish tradition around death and burial? How do these innovative initiatives cohere um, with those traditions? The first step that we're going to take is to investigate some of those assumptions that we bring to this conversation, some of which um, may need some rethinking. Let's begin with some of the assumptions around Jewish end-of-life practices. Well, we begin with the notion of what it means to uh, be present to, bear witness to, and accompany the mate, the deceased, which we do through the practices of shmirah, of constant supervision of the body from the moment of death until the moment of burial. In fact, the Hebrew word for funeral, levaya, sometimes pronounced a levaya, comes from the Hebrew word, which means to accompany. There is a deep spiritual um, response to death in the form of accompaniment. We prepare a body for burial through the rituals of tahara, the ritual washing and dressing of the body in tahrichin, in, in simple white shrouds. The burial in a plain pine box, although that is not a universal tradition as we'll see, and burial in a Jewish cemetery. The values of simplicity, of dignity, of equality, and above all, as I said before, kivod hamet, the honor that we want to show to the deceased. These are thought of as the universally accepted requirements within the halachic, the Jewish legal tradition. However, how we achieve um, those requirements, how we bring to life the value of kavod hamet, is actually um, a little bit more nuanced. It is discussed in the tradition with a little bit more flexibility as these assumptions have unfolded over the millennia of Jewish tradition. So let's begin looking at the core requirement of burial. And let's ask ourselves, is burial actually required by Jewish law? For some context, almost every ancient culture emphasized burial and burial rites. And in some cultures like ancient Mesopotamia, the next world was thought to be actually underground, not above in heaven, but actually deep within the earth. So in order to expedite our dead getting to the next world, burial in the earth made sense based on those beliefs. There are even hints to that in the Torah with references to the word Sheol, which referred to a neutral underground place where the dead were assumed to go. But that doesn't answer the question as to whether this is a legal requirement from the perspective of Jewish tradition. 
On the one hand, from the creation story in Genesis 319, which you see on your source sheets that were prepared for you, we have what seems like the foundational verse for returning bodies to the earth. By the sweat of your brow shall you get bread to eat until you return to the ground. Ad shivcha el ha'adama. Why? For from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Ki mimena lukachad ki afar ata ve'el afar tashuv. Here's we we have this this core verse that seems to indicate our belief that we are created from the earth and so we will return from the earth. But it doesn't clarify for us in what form we will return to the earth intact as we tend to practice or in some other state. The pivotal verse around which the sages debate whether there is in fact a halachic, a legal requirement for burial is the second source you have from Deuteronomy 21, which actually um, is a verse that deals with the burial requirements of someone who is guilty of a crime. So we read if a person is guilty of a capital offense and is put to death and you impale them on a stake. Let's not get into that. That's a whole nother conversation. You must not let their corpse remain on the stake overnight. Ki kavor tikberenu bayom hahu, but you must bury them on that same day. Why? Because an impaled body is an affront to God. You shall not defile the land that Adonai your God has given you to possess. So here we have what the sages focused on, a doubling of the verb which we translate to bury, ki kavor tikberenu. And that doubling of the verb is debated as a possible source of the legal requirement to bury being a biblically mandated requirement. It could, by some readings, be there to emphasize the need to care for our dead promptly, as this verse is seeming to suggest to us, because leaving a dead body out, halanat hamait, is actually a very serious biblical offense, right? And an affront not just to that body and to the family of that deceased, but also to God, according to this verse. The sages in the Talmud in Masechet Sanhedrin enter into a long and heated debate about this very verse and what it's trying to tell us. So let's look at some of that debate, as you see in the next source from the Talmud Sanhedrin 46b. The Mishnah teaches that everybody, not only an executed criminal, must be buried on the day of their death if that's at all possible. Rabbi Yochanan says in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, from where is it derived? That one who leaves his deceased overnight without burying them transgresses a prohibition. And so they quote our verse, Kavor Tikberenu, you shall bury them, right? Doubling the verb for emphasis. And they learn from here that if you don't bury your relative right away, you are transgressing a serious prohibition, right? So the opening section of their discussion here doesn't really talk about any requirement to bury it talks about a requirement to dispose of the body immediately but then it goes on there are those who say that rabbi yochanan says in the name of rabbi shimon bar yochai where in the torah is there a remez a hint to the mitzvah of burial and again our verse is quoted kavor berenu you shall bury doubling the verb right and from here the suggestion is there is a mitzvah to bury that we find in the Torah. But let's let's just dwell for a moment on the formulation of the question, where is there a remez, right? They're not asking for an explicit source. They're already admitting that there is no clear source requiring burial. They're looking for a hint. When we go on, we'll see that it wasn't just the rabbis who were investigating this tradition. Even non-Jewish people were asking about it. I'm reading the source in, uh, I'm continuing that source. The Gemara relates, King Shapur, the monarch of Persia, once said to Rav Chama, from where in the Torah is there a hint to the mitzvah of burial? What proof is there that the dead must be buried and not treated in some other manner? Rav Chama was silent and said nothing to him as he could not find a suitable source. Wow. Wow. Rav Chama said, I don't know. Now, his colleagues were not so happy with that. Rav Bar Yaakov said, the world has been handed over to the foolish. Rav Chama had so many things he could have answered to King Shapur. He should have said that the mitzvah of burials derived from the verse, again quoting ours, Kavor Tikberenu. 
But the Gemara fights back against Rabbi Achabar Yaakov and says, he couldn't have made such a simple uh, retort to King Shapur because King Shapur could have said, you know what, all that doubling of the verb says to me is that maybe a coffin should be made for the deceased, that they can be placed in it. Not that this is that the deceased have to actually be placed in the ground. The Gemara challenges. Rav Chama could still have claimed that the mitzvah of burial is derived from, again, the doubling of the verb. And then it answers itself saying, well, if you tried that one, King Shapur could also have retorted and said, you don't learn anything from a doubling of a verb. It's just a, a stylistic choice. It's not the source of a new law. The Gemara comes at it a third time. Well, Rav Chama could have said that the mitzvah of the bury the dead is derived from the fact that the righteous forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all buried. The Gemara says, but King Shapur could have said that was just custom. It wasn't law. The sages are here arguing against themselves, throwing out a possibility, providing an objection to that possibility, all in the search of an authoritative source for what seems to be an unquestionable, incontrovertible part of Jewish practice. We bury our dead. Lacking a textual argument, they turn to just family tradition, but that's also rejected as being binding in any way. So they turn to the ultimate source, which is, of course, the Kaddish Baruch Hu, God. And the Gemara continues, Rav Chama could have derived the myths from the fact that the Holy One buried Moses, right? What better proof do we need that that's the way to handle the dead? But the Gemara objects even to that and says, well, King Shapur could still have said that God did that, not because it was a law, but just because that was the custom. It doesn't prove at all that burying the dead is in fact a mitzvah. You gotta love that about our tradition, the sort of sacred chutzpah that our sages could even say that God's actions don't prove anything to us about a binding feature of Jewish law because God could have just been following a custom, following a, you know, a folk way, if you will. So what do we know so far? We know the fact that the sages were looking for the hint in the Torah that they really were not clear on this being any kind of biblically mandated requirement that we bury our dead. We know um, that uh, without that biblical explicit commandment, it opens up to a variety of uh, ways of framing this practice. So some later halachic authorities rule that since there is a suffake, since there is a doubt as to whether it's a biblical obligation to bury, we rule strictly in, in line with the principle suffake de oraita lechumra. When there's a doubt about a biblical commandment, we rule strictly. And so we require all to be buried. But other authorities say, you know what? There's no biblical source for this. It must just be a rabbinic convention, a rabbinic decree. And safekt rabbanan lakula. When there's a doubt about a rabbinic decree, we rule leniently. And therefore, if somebody chooses to be disposed of another way, we should honor their wishes. Right? So we have a, an, a, a debate that is not concluded within our halachic literature. And in fact, Archaeological studies reveal no distinct Israelite burial practice during the entire biblical period. And scholars have warned us not to draw any firm conclusions about Israelite beliefs or values on the basis of any specific burial practices. The bottom line is that halachic research, halachic uh, tradition says relatively little of any definitive nature about burial. There is no clear source for it. And where it treats the subject, the primary concern is to avoid defilement of the dead. The major concern of the halachic literature is kivod hamet, the honor due to the deceased and not specific burial practices. And that's clear from the lotalin, don't leave this body out. You could argue, as some have, that burial of the dead is one primary and most universally accepted way of fulfilling the admonishment not to leave a body out and not just the admonishment but actually the 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 biblical requirement not to leave the body out but there may be in other ways of fulfilling that requirement okay i'm going to move forward now 
and share with you some of the other more flexible um, approaches within the tradition when it comes to burial that evolved over the ensuing centuries. Later authorities, including Maimonides, Rambam, relate to burial in the earth as a mitzvah, but the process wasn't exactly the same as we know it today. We have sources actually that look quite askance at our use of a casket. And we know in Israel, a casket actually to this day is not used. Um, in the 17th century, there are uh, sources that, that admonish us that if a casket is going to be used, it must have apertures, it must have holes drilled into it in order for the body to fulfill the primary need, which is to be in direct relationship with the earth. Um, sometimes providing a pillow of dirt under which the head of the corpse um, was allowed to rest or placing some dirt on the face uh, of the deceased in that casket. Um, we have other sources that take more lenient stances suggesting that um, direct contact with the earth isn't necessarily uh, um, fulfilled through direct burial in the ground and that um, any where we place a body inevitably and eventually is returned to the earth in terms of its degrading um, life cycle or the life cycle, I should say, of degradation. Um, other methods than the one that we typically employ in terms of burial included burial in underground. Um, um, well, actually, I'll get to some of those specifics in a minute, but some of those different approaches were dictated not by any sense of halachic tradition, but more by um, uh, by topology, more by the state of the ground and soil conditions. In the time of Maimonides, uh, it used to be the tradition that a cave was dug and a crypt was hollowed out in the side of the cave and the body was put into the crypt facing upwards and then dirt and stones were replaced Almost as an afterthought, Maimonides refers to a casket, which can be used. This latter method of burial in a, in a grotto is actually described in great detail in the Talmud in Masachet Bava Batra. It, um, it, it often necessitated the construction of, of quite elaborate catacombs. And the distances between each grotto and between crypts were determined not by any objective halachic formula, but by the soil condition, by the conditions of the rocks, so that each individual burial site would remain intact and separate from its neighbor. Rather than the way we uh, define our cemetery setups today with specific measurements, the concern was the spacing, the distinct and durable separation of the bodies. So, you know, for people who are concerned about land scarcity today and the amount of space that cemeteries take up, um, the the measurements by which we make our decisions could actually be rethought if our civil rules could also be relaxed. Because the halachic sources say that if the soil conditions will support it, we don't really need more than four and a half, maybe five, maximum six inches between graves. Think how different it is in the way our contemporary graves are set up. So the depths of grave also, of graves also, seem to have been driven more by local custom than any kind of objective prescription. Um, in some places, the density of graveyards um, necessitated burying dead above those who were already interred. Um, and again, the custom, not law, the custom was to bury with enough spatial separations to preserve the integrity of each grave. Um, in, in, in another uh, Talmudic text, we find actually a completely different approach to burial um, and the disposition of the body. In a really interesting ancient practice, the corpse was first buried in a koch, in a hollowed out space underground, and it was left in that space for, the, for a period of about 12 months until the flesh had completely decomposed or the skeleton had come apart. And on an appointed day, the family would go and collect the bones that had been left and would then bury the bones in an ossuary or some kind of family burial receptacle, often placed back in the cave. And that way, the, the koch, that, that sort of hollowed out space could be used by another body. 
until it, it again would break down and then the bones would be collected and buried oftentimes with family. And that's what helps us understand references in the Torah to um, phrases like around the death of, of Avraham, el-amav, he was gathered unto his people. Uh, and the same for some of the other patriarchs, that, that reflects this idea of gathering his bones and placing them in an ossuary next to his kin. And those Talmudic descriptions are actually supported by archaeological findings um, in Israel. Um, in fact, some even say that um, you could make one long casket with dividers in it and keep adding bones from family members into that single casket and then uh, um, laying them to rest more permanently there, which is what we see in the Talmud Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi had actually requested for himself. Imagine the economy of space, the efficiencies that we could create if this early model was brought back to life. We see vestiges of this uh, visible in, uh, in cemeteries in northern Israel. Um, these practices provided the blueprint for massive underground cemeteries that are being built also in Jerusalem. Um, you know, in response to very limited space. So there are alternatives that live within the tradition, both in ancient times and even in modern iterations today, in terms of where we bury, uh, um, in terms of the, 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 um, uh, the architecture of our burial grounds, uh, you know, above ground mausoleums, which have become more popular, have, were often frowned upon by Jewish authorities uh, in history, but that whole concept is, is not new. Um, even Maimonides refers to them in his writings. So while I will share that, that, that doing a funeral for someone who's being buried in an above ground mausoleum is, um, is a new and often um, um, unusual uh, experience as it, as it was to me the first time I was summoned to do a burial of that kind. These are not radically new models. They are deeply rooted um, in the tradition. I will share with you in in uh, a description of some of these that that all have the potential to bring greater efficiencies to our practices. Um, I met a few years ago an architect through a committee that I sat on at Columbia University who is utilizing a version of what I described of placing bodies temporarily in a, in a holding space until the flesh decomposes and then being able to collect their bones. She is using a version of this model um, to bring our dead back to our cities. I live here in New York City and our cemeteries in the city are completely and have been for a long time absolutely full. And so people tend to bury their dead in outer lying suburbs, Long Island, New Jersey, that could be an hour and a half, sometimes two hours away. In an effort to bring our dead closer to home, she is trying to revive this, this um, pattern of reusable chambers. And she's trying to also capture the energy that is released from the body as the body is decomposing and using that energy to power city lights around those uh, city cemeteries. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating initiative that touches on notions of sustainability as spiritual and religious um, um, priorities today in very creative ways. So we've seen that burial as we know it is not exactly how burial was done throughout the ages and that there are early precedents that could serve as models to us who are those of us who are concerned about being more economical in land use um, and uh, and and uh, more um, expansive in our understandings of how one returns a body to the earth. Now I want to look with you at some alternatives to burial that have um, that have been introduced in recent years. Cremation is not new. But the, uh, the growing numbers of people within the Jewish community and certainly beyond who are electing for cremation is bringing renewed uh, energy to the conversation around how cremation actually lives um, in relationship to Jewish law. 
Cremation was uncommon throughout ancient Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, owing to the simple fact that cremation requires a tremendous amount of wood. And um, there was a scarcity of wood in, in that area of the world. But also keep in mind that the next world didn't live up above, but rather down below. So the notion of bodies being transformed into smoke that would ascend to heaven also didn't correlate to the reigning beliefs at the time. Now, halachic authorities throughout previous millennia have prohibited cremation, to be clear. But again, there is no explicit source in the Torah or in the Talmud that forbids cremation. Certainly, cremation was understood to be a pagan practice where it was practiced in ancient times, and so became associated with idolatry, which helps to explain rabbinic halachic opposition to it. But there also seem to be some texts that suggest that it might have been practiced in a limited way in our ancient Jewish um, history. So take a look at um, one text that comes from Yirmiyahu, where the prophet Jeremiah is telling the king Tzidkiyahu that while Jerusalem will indeed fall to the Babylonians and people will be killed, he himself will not die a violent death. I'm looking at Yirmiyahu 34, where he says to Tzidkiyahu, you will die a peaceful death. And as the burnings of your ancestors, the earlier kings who preceded you, so they will burn for you and they will lament for you. Or consider the verse that I don't think you have in front of you from Shmuel, from Samuel. Uh, after Shaul uh, dies in the war against the Plishtim, actually, I think you do have it. Um, all their stalwart men set out and marched all night. They removed the bodies of Shaul and his sons from the wall of Beit Shan and came to Yavesh and burned them there. They burned them there. And they took the bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Yavesh and they fasted for seven days. Now, it's a little unclear in the verse from Yirmiyahu whether they were burning the bodies or the possessions. Keep in mind, it was very common in the ancient world after a, a member of the royalty died to burn their royal possessions, their bed, their utensils. And they also would sometimes burn spices or incense as part of the embalming. In uh, Masechet Avodazarah, Another area in the Talmud, it teaches that it wasn't the actual kings who were burned, but rather a Brita teaches that we, we burn items of the king as an expression of grief. Um, and Rambam, actually, in, uh, in his Mishnah Torah, I think I, you have that on your sheet. The king must receive great honor. He is to be venerated and feared by everyone. No one may ride his horse, sit on his chair or throne, use his scepter or his crown or any of his vessels. When he dies... All of these are destroyed by fire. And in fact, with regards to Shaul and his son, there is a commentary by Radak, Rabbi David Kimchi, who explains that the bodies must have been filled with worms because they had been lying out on the battlefield for a while, and it wasn't respectful to bury them in that condition. And so they burned the flesh of Shaul and his sons in order to rid the bodies of the worms, and then they buried the bones. In other words, they buried, they burned the bodies as an expression of kavod hamet, of, um, of honor to the deceased, implying that there may be circumstances under which cremation might be okay if indeed it serves the purpose of showing honor to the deceased, of preventing some kind of bizayon, degradation or indignity. But what constitutes bizayon? What constitutes uh, indignity? Does this permissiveness under these circumstances open the doors if there is no blanket prohibition, um, especially if the conversation around burial is inconclusive, right, and seems to be just a widely observed custom. Um, the Talmudic conversation and debate that we opened with in Masechet Sanhedrin um, carries on about whether not being buried is is uh, itself a source of disgrace or shame. 
um, or whether burial is required in order to secure atonement for someone who dies. And all I can share with you is that that discussion remains unresolved. And some other insights from the sources on the topic of cremation, we have an interesting ruling from the medieval code of law, the Shulchan Aruch, that says, you know, you're not supposed to carry things from the private domain to the public domain on Shabbat. And there is a source that says, even if a body that is awaiting burial needs to be moved because there's a risk of fire where it is currently lying and the body could be at risk for being burned, the law says you may not move it on Shabbat. Right? And that unusual ruling, we might expect that in order to, to protect the body from any kind of uh, offense, that we would certainly allow for its movement on Shabbat. But we but the Shulchan Aruch rules that you can't move it. And a later commentary explains that the reason you can't move it is because a body being burned is not considered bizayon. It's not considered um, in any way uh, a disgrace or or a source of indignity. And that if someone requests that their body be burned, so says the Magain Avraham, a 17th century Polish authority, then we might do well to listen to them. And as you can see in the source sheet from Masachigitin, mitzvah kayem divrei hamet, it is a separate and and um, and compelling requirement that we honor the words, the instructions, the requests of the deceased. We also have this notion um, that comes to us from the Rashba, from an even earlier source in the 13th century, that if somebody requested to be buried in a different location from the one in which they died, maybe there's a family cemetery plot somewhere, um, but they weren't able to be transported on the day that they died, and they're put in a temporary grave, it is permitted to put chemicals on the body to accelerate its decomposition so that it does not lose dignity for not having been uh, disposed of right away, right? So that during the waiting period, the body can in fact proceed in an expedited way to decompose and that the transportation can then take place without further risk of degradation to the body, right? So what analogy might we draw between placing um, a chemical, an external chemical on the body to, to um, quicken its, its decomposition to this question of um, of cremation. Um, again, there are authorities who say that anything we do to honor the dead or to benefit them can never be considered bizayon, can never be considered degrading them or compromising them in any way. Certainly, there are things that undermine the natural process that we want to prefer, but that doesn't mean that these alternatives are necessarily prohibited by law. Now, it's not probably uh, a surprise to many of you that uh, halachic authorities uh, like Rav Cook and others in times closer to ours ruled that cremation is absolutely prohibited and that he even went one step further and said that it's prohibited to bury the ashes of someone who's cremated in a Jewish cemetery. Some even went so far to say that we deny Shiva and Kaddish for someone who chooses cremation. But others um, in even Rambam from much earlier days felt that you should base them, you should bury them in a Jewish cemetery and uses our verse from Devarim as proof. Here you're talking about a criminal who was deserving of, of capital punishment and still our priority is to bury them. And some executions, by the way, not that, you know, the question of whether Jewish law actually ever condemned anybody to death is itself subject to great debate. And we learned that if uh, if a rabbinical court sentenced one criminal to death in 70 years, it was considered a bloodthirsty court. But keep in mind that one of the punishments or forms of capital punishment that are countenanced by the Talmudic tradition was uh, being burned to death, fire. Eventually, the prohibition against cremation became universal, and so many have argued that there's no reason to overturn it. Um, but, and, and before I say but, I mean, there are those who also bring theological arguments uh, against cremation, such as 
concerned that anybody who's cremated might not be worthy of triat team, the um, uh, uh, rebirth of the dead, right? Because if there's no body to bring back to life, that's kind of a weak argument. I mean, if there is a God and that God can perform the miracle of of re-enlivening a dead body, I would imagine that that God could also probably reconstitute the body. Um, there, uh, when I studied this issue with a colleague of mine, they predicted that while cremation won't necessarily be accepted widely by Jewish halachic authorities today, um, we're probably not far from um, from someone placing some kind of rabbinic um, seal on that choice. But wherever we may fall along that spectrum, um, what's important for us to take away is that there is no explicit verse against cremation. And there are sources which prioritize respecting the wishes of the deceased over any particular form of the disposition of their bodies. And at this point in time, it is much more widely embraced by rabbinic authorities that if someone does choose to be cremated, that we bury them properly, uh, the ashes uh, in a Jewish cemetery. And many, many traditions um, uh, encourage rabbis to officiate at a funeral service before the cremation and at the burial of the ashes, although some continue to discourage that. Um, let me say um, another word. Uh, well, on, on the cremation piece, uh, what I can say is that some who discourage cremation have used the withholding of tahara, of the ritual purification of the body, as an attempt to discourage cremation. I think it's fair to say that none of those efforts, which are often experienced as punitive, um, have done anything to diminish the interest among Jewish people in cremation. So we are um, facing in this conversation, um, a conversation that we find ourselves in around many contemporary questions of Jewish law, which is that in an age where Jewish practice is um, by and large a voluntary expression of Jewish commitment, those of us who are privileged to be um, to be in positions of trying to offer meaning and purpose and learning um, and inspiration, um, you know, have to do very deep wrestling with whether we are here to impose a single model of Jewish expression or whether to be able to walk with people and the variety of choices that people are making and try to bring as much Jewish meaning and connection um, and integrity to those choices. I learned, um, you know, uh, about 15 years into my rabbinate, I've been ordained and working as a rabbi for over 30 years now. Um, but I learned through some very difficult uh, moments that um, in truth, my mission and purpose as a rabbi is not to inspire or educate people to become versions of me and to replicate my Jewish choices, but to educate and, and empower and inspire people to make the Jewish choices that are most authentic and sustainable and meaningful to them and to be as much a source of, uh, of learning and of dignity as I can be for them. I will note that, um, you know, many of us find ourselves in, in when, when losing a parent to sometimes confront the clash between our own Jewish values and the values of our parents and the choices that they may have made. And it brings out layers of the mitzvah of kibbud of the aim, um, the honor we wanna show to our parents do we, do we follow their choices when their choices contradict our readings of Jewish tradition? Do we impose our values on them? These are difficult conversations. The most important takeaway, I think, is for us to really have these conversations beforehand um, so, that, so that we can make the most uh, you know, appropriate choices. I wanna say a word before I leave cremation. I'm looking at our time. Um, I'll, I'll ask for your patience a little bit because I had some tech issues. Um, I want to make it very clear, having said all of this, that the assumption that cremation is a greener choice and thinking of that choice as living in alignment with our Jewish call to planetary sustainability and to caring for the earth, that is actually a very serious misunderstanding. 
Cremation is not an eco-friendly choice. The amount of emissions from the energy that it takes and from the um, release of toxins within the body that get burned and that get released into the atmosphere makes cremation actually an extremely, extremely um, painful assault on the environment. And even the shedding the, of ashes, the scattering, I should say, of ashes onto the earth is very, very harmful because the remains from cremation contain residues, residues like sodium that are actually very, very um, harmful to vegetation. So this romantic idea of scattering ashes to promote growth or planting them is severely misguided. The other form of cremation that is becoming popular is called alkaline hydrolysis, which uses water to um, dissolve the body. It's now legal in at least uh, 18 states. Um, it uh, requires the water to be heated to a certain level the pressure from the water and the um, some of the additives to the water cause the expedited degradation of the flesh so that you are left with the bones which can then be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Some of the questions that we have to wrestle with around aquamation or or this alkaline hydrolysis is that the water that remains after that process is often directed into the local sewage uh, pipes. And we have to ask ourselves whether that process coheres with our values of kivod hamet. Right? It may, it may, it, the, the, the accelerated degradation of the flesh, as we've seen, might be able to live within Jewish tradition, but what is the state of uh, of that water which contains the remains of the flesh of of that person? And the other uh, proce process that I want to raise with you today is human composting, or what's called um, natural organic reduction, which is a process that takes about 30 days where the body is placed in a vessel along with wood chips and straw and is, or sometimes the vessel is called a, a curing bin, um, and the soil is allowed to rest and to mix with, uh, you know, to continue exhaling carbon dioxide. Once that process is complete, um, family can come and retrieve the soil that is the remains of, uh, of, their, of their beloved. Now, there are several questions that are, are raised for us in terms of this, this process and Jewish law. Um, as we saw, there are many sources that emphasize the quick reintegration of the body with the earth. Um, and we saw that not everywhere are coffins used. Um, we saw that there are, you know, accepted times of, of chemicals that are placed on the body to to accelerate that decomposition. But the question around natural organic reduction includes what do we do with that soil that remains? Um, do we take that soil and bury it in a Jewish cemetery? Um, do we take that soil and place it somewhere else and maybe use it to plant trees? as part of an effort to reforest and replenish our planet. Um, that begs the question of whether designated burial grounds are required in Jewish tradition. Um, gravestones are not required by Jewish tradition and are, are far from universal. Uh, in earliest times, no inscribers, no inscribed markers were used. Uh, sometimes just a plain stone was placed over a grave, partly to prevent scavenging animals from getting into the grave. Um, it then became an expression of you know, wealthy families to place um, stones as markers. Um, and actually communal cemeteries grew out of family cemeteries. So it raises this question of the form formal burial grounds, whether they are necessary. It also raises the question of whether um, using this soil for any other purpose, like let's say it was used to establish some green uh, areas in a in a municipality in a neighborhood, 
Well, we have pretty strict traditions around what kind of behaviors are appropriate in a cemetery. Levity is frowned upon in a cemetery. Um, so what would it mean to create parkland out of the soil of human remains? It might have a clear ecological benefit, but it, is it an expression of kavod hamet? We also have a clear instruction in our tradition not to derive any benefit, no hana'a, from a deceased body. If we deploy this soil with the best of intentions to greening our planet, either through reforestation or, or establishing more green land, um, how does that cohere with the, the value of not deriving benefit from a deceased body? How do we resolve the tension between wanting to take greater responsibility for the health of our planet and also continue to take responsibility for our, uh, for our tradition? So I'm just going to sum up and say, amazingly or not, it turns out that um, the most ancient of Jewish burial practices, that of simply placing the body into the ground as a way to quickly reintegrate it with the earth, um, and maybe even collecting the bones after decomposition to be placed in a family ossuary, it seems, amazingly or not, that our most foundational approaches to bodily disposition uh, are among the most green approaches. Right, our ancient Jewish tradition is probably one of the most environmentally sound approach to burial, though there is room, as we saw, for greater efficiencies there. Um, what we need is some fresh halachic thinking in terms of the new approaches for handling the body after death to see if we can have them align with the Jewish values and practices that are known to us in terms of alkaline hydrolysis, natural organic reduction, uh, Capsula Mundi, which is an Italian initiative where the body is placed in a, uh, in a cocoon containing seeds. And as the body decomposes, it nourishes the seeds and a tree and other vegetation grows from that place. What we know is that there is openness and expansiveness within the tradition regarding the requirement of burial. We know that there is a priority to reintegrate with the earth and that there are moments when um, there is permission to allow for substances that accelerate that process. We know there is no firm precedent regarding Jewish uh, collective uh, cemetery grounds. We know that it is a mitzvah to honor the wishes of the deceased. And we know that we have an equally authoritative halachic imperative to be stewards of creation. And so in this moment where environmental responsibility is, uh, I would say, among our top religious uh, priorities today. This conversation could not be more urgent. And uh, we, we are appealing not for uniformity in any way, but for our tradition and those who call it home to bring uh, courageous expansiveness to, uh, to this conversation and to, uh, and to the efforts to, to promote a creative tension between all we know and love about our past and the tools that are at our disposal today to build a redeeming and hopeful future. Thank you so much, Rabbi Lewitis. That was really, really fascinating. Um, we'd love to open it up to questions or comments. We do have a couple minutes left. Uh, feel free to raise your hands. And I see Dean, you have your hand up. Hi, thank you so much for what's really been a, a, a terrific presentation. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to what is sometimes called a forest burial, of uh, burying, burying of bodies in uh, natural land um, without markers, without uh, chemicals or coffins, and the, uh, the planting of uh, trees and vegetation um, that will grow there directly. I think that... Um that sounds very much like our most ancient of practices right the, where burial took place not um in designated communal areas uh rachel was buried right on the on the road um along the, the side of the road what is critical is that however that is done that it is done with great dignity and respect um, for for the deceased, 
Um, and that, you know, there is a way to perhaps designate that, that there are human remains there so that those who come upon that space treat it with the appropriate, um, with the appropriate respect. But, you know, it sounds most like what we've always done. Thank you. Um, I see there were a few questions that came in in the chat. Um, I'm going to try to find the top one. Uh, one from Daniel was, what are you planning to do for yourself about burial? <laughs> Funny you should ask. I am actually in the process right now of uh, building a cemetery. Um, I, I am Canadian, in case you didn't catch it in some of my pronunciation. Um, and I'm very blessed to, um, to have grown up uh, with a family home in the Laurentian Mountains, north of Montreal, in a beautiful municipality called Ivry-sur-le-Lac. And um, several of our Jewish neighbors, uh, we've come together and we are um, in the process of designating some land as, um, as Jewish burial land for those of us who feel that place to be home in a deep existential way. And we are hoping to, um, to provide this space to, um, to Jewish people and to others who have made their home in our Jewish families and in our Jewish communities, um, to be able to bring not just the treasure of traditional practices, but also some of these newer initiatives in alignment with Jewish values, um, um, in the establishment of uh, of a of a green uh, Jewish burial place, and so that is my that's my that's my intention in terms of location. And um, as we continue to discover what um, whatever constraints are placed upon us by the municipalities, it is it is my wish to be buried um, as directly as possible um, into the earth, um, and if that is allowed without a coffin that would that would be my choice i will i will share with you we have one green jewish cemetery in the united states ganyarok uh, uh, in marin county california where um, um, one of my dearest friends master jewish educator rachel brody zikhonali vacha was buried uh, almost a year ago uh, her yard site will be observed this coming thursday and this gives me a chance to also uh, Offer this teaching in in her memory. Um, it was the first green Jewish burial that I ever witnessed, and it was it was again. I don't mean this uh, tongue in cheek, but it was truly life changing for me in terms of the possibilities that it manifested. Rachel was uh, buried um, directly into the earth, wrapped in tachrichin. Um, she was transported to the burial site on just a wooden platform. For, for the logistical dignity, frankly. Um, and uh, prior to her being placed into the earth, there were um, branches and branches of evergreen that were placed as a bed, if you will, um, within the, the ground. She was then placed into the ground. And then on top of her were placed more branches of evergreen. And then on top of those branches, um, earth, was was replaced and if you've ever been to Ganyarok to the cemetery it's not a cemetery that is designed in a grid-like fashion but there are graves that are dug into the side of the rolling hills of Marin County um, within the precincts of the cemetery so that people are more um, scattered is not the right word but placed in in sort of idiosyncratic ways as opposed to it looking like a you know a formal grid. I was deeply moved by that experience and would hope for for a similar a similar experience. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry we won't uh, really have time to answer any more questions. I know there were a few more, um, but we. I, I mean, I'm ha I'm happy to stay on a few more minutes if if you are, but I don't want to undermine um, your programming and check. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm I'm able to stay on later. Um, maybe if you're comfortable sharing your contact information or people could send me questions, maybe we could arrange uh, something like that. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm gonna put my um, my email in the chat, adinalewittis at gmail.com. I'm sure you have my name from whatever publicity um, you you saw for this 
program. So it's just my name at Gmail and I would be honored and delighted to continue this conversation with anyone who has any, any more questions. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, and thank you so much. This has been a really interesting presentation. It was an honor to have you here. Uh, thank you everyone for joining. We will be on a little bit of a break for Pesach. So our next class is not until um, April 20th, where we will hear from Rabbi Will Friedman about repairing the world, tikkun olam, radical justice, or conscientious con consequentialism. So I hope that uh, you can all join us for that. And thanks again. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.